The Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like to access bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bonesandbobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group so you can hang out with us. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully (laughs) discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. Hi, I'm Natalie from Uberdork Designs, an official murderino maker. Very fancy. Very fun. So, hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. I got a lot of kittens. Yes, you do. And they're super fun. They are growing alarmingly quickly, they seem from pictures. Yes, um, I made the mistake of trying to put them in their kitten playpen a couple days ago, and um, turns out they don't really fit very well in there anymore. (laughs) (sighs) They'll need a new one. I I just put it away. (laughs) Forget it. I give up on on kittens, but... um, I do want to tell you, and I think maybe I mentioned this before, but we never did anything about it, that uh, I ordered us frozen Charlotte dolls, and they've arrived. Yay! Also, (laughs) Yes! So, I'm going to open them right now. That box in and of itself. It's a terrifying box. It is. And I will probably make a video of all of it for... Patreon folks to see, but it is, everything about this purchase has just been a little mm, questionable. <laughs> would, would you expect anything else when it has to do with us? <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's just about right for us. It's just, yeah. I think it's really just the creepy box that it showed up in, and I, it's been sitting on my work table with selenite and black tourmaline on top of it for like two weeks. Yep. And so... <laughs> just making sure. I, you never know. You don't. Mm-mm. You don't. Uh, why won't you open? <laughs> oh, no. See? It's like, oh, you thought you'd be slick? You thought you'd be fun? Seriously, though. 
Why don't you open? Is there a <laughs> hook? <laughs> Come out and play with us. Oh no, I think the hook, <laughs> on, the creepy hook on the outside actually does. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. No, no, no. It's a drawer. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's so hmm. weird. I don't even know what to do with this. <laughs> I don't. She's busting Uh-oh. out tools now. It's serious. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got it. Oh, boy. <laughs> it really does, it does have two metal loops holding the box shut. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Ooh. It's open, but see? You, it's like, like it knew. It's that. Ju- oh, wow. They need to be contained, clearly. Um, they. <laughs> They're wrapped up like little mummies. <laughs> um, I think I have the blonde one in my hand. There's a blonde one and a brunette. So, whoop, let's see. Oh, God. They're also, <laughs> they're wrapped up in ancient tissue paper. Nope, this one's the of brunette. Course. Huh. Oh, hello. Uh, uh, I think its shoes used to be blue blue is what it looks yeah it's got lips are still intact so are the eyes kind of (laughs) its butt crack is definitely intact look at that little butt it's so cute and like the little line in the small of the back well that's a seven i think um it's marked 401 and then seven below it all right so that's that one and it's very old um yeah, so that, that happened. Um, let's have a look at the next one, I guess. This may uh, want to end up being a, an extra for Patreon, um, <laughs> since it's taken much longer than I anticipated to break into it. Oh, this one is wrapped up in ex- like extremely old decorative um, paper towel. Oh, okay. What's wrong with her head? <laughs> All right. So here's uh, here's the blonde one. Oh, she's sh- decidedly more creepy. Yeah. Well, because her eyes and her mouth are all really there. The blonde. What kind the of on her forehead? I I don't. That's what I yes. <laughs> okay. Um. Her butt's a little more squished because oh, she's German, apparently. <laughs> um, and it says Germany 320p6 on her back. Wow. So, so there we are. Um, welcome, there, small dolls. I will, uh, I will send you one. <laughs> well, they don't feel scary. And they're kind of sweet. They're little. I can't get the lid of the box back on. So I'll be sending you one of those. Yay! And probably this box. So you can experience (laughs) it for yourself. (laughs) I will have my tools ready. Oh my goodness. So, anyway. Yeah, I have... uh, 
kittens. I have two kittens and two frozen Charlotte dolls. Nice. That's where I'm at. Uh, how about you? I, I have um, I have all kinds of new toys to play with. Um, I'm expanding uh, the Uber Dork Designs uh, offerings, Ooh. Uh, which will also probably start with me doing some much requested Bones and Bobbins merch. Um, starting out with, I ordered right. some very uh, very cool vinyl uh, sticker paper. Uh, to print on and make stickers. Um, mm-hmm. and they'll be die cut because I have a machine to die cut it and everything. So um, I'm fancy. Also, yeah, I'm also working on uh, a design for a corset kitten sticker. <laughs> <laughs> because I have well, if to. you need any kittens to model, I'm... boy, do I have kittens <laughs> for you. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, which is the small thing that I ordered. The big thing is I um I found a Epson printer that I'm redoing into a sublimation printer. Cool. Um, so I'm hacking it so I can do sublimation printing. So I got everything to hack it. Um, have the ink. I have paper, and I got a five-in-one heat press to do mugs and t-shirts and all of that stuff. So, um, and I've That's done, I mean, cool. I've done, I've been doing t-shirts and mugs and stuff like that, especially when I do like, um, craft shows or I have a couple of stores and shops sure. in Milwaukee and stuff that I sell at. Um, and I've been doing the, you know, vinyl with that, but sublimation just seems like a whole lot more fun. Um, yeah. and just another, another thing. So, uh, I'm super excited to, to play with all of that and then have stuff available, um, to, give to our patreon guinea pigs and yeah, then, our, you know <laughs> then open it our up beloved our, our beloved yes they are our, um maybe they can be our frozen charlottes yes this uh this first round our beloved make... frozen charlottes please don't can... die <laughs> please don't i kind of want to make them like little like in when you said that i'm picturing like a little like sabrina style frozen charlotte cheerleading squad (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) Uh, yes because you know goth cheerleaders yeah i um well i was a goth gymnast so not dissimilar but um speaking a lot more flips Mm-hmm. We should right. We should probably take a quick break to thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon, and also mm-hmm. it would be a good time to give a totally normal and not at all creepy welcome to our newest member, Heather Heron. Thanks, Heather. Yay! Welcome aboard. Now I want to watch Heather's. Right <gasps> there we go. Oh, Winona Ryder. Yes, and Croquet. Yes. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> now that I've had my teenage moment. Right. Um, yes. Uh, hot ladies of Haley's teenage years. Did you have the free Winona shirt? Because I definitely had the free oh, Winona shirt. Absolutely. Also, um, I have to let you know that we are not all that far from Winona, Minnesota, where she was born and named after interesting she does I have a, no idea she also does a local commercial for she does it actually it's a string of commercials um 
and I think it's for like a web design company, but it's uh, it's all based on doing a, a website for Winona, Minnesota. I will have to send you those clips. Oh, that's funny. Because it's, yeah. I will forever love her. Forever. Yes. Like, and I think anybody that grew up in our time period like that. Oh, yes. Just always. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, her in and of So herself. now that we've gone... <laughs> yeah. But, but then she got Christian Slater, too. So... I know, right? So much. So much. Oh. Teenage hormonal <laughs> worship. Um, <laughs> uh, we've aged ourselves. Um, it's fine. I'm fine with it. Yes. No, I feel great about that. Um, <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah, that era was also Angelina Jolie before she got... Hackers. <clears throat> yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, God, she was so hot in Hackers because she oh. had this, like, androgynous. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, well, that's why Absolutely. I know Ryder was hot, too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yes, now that, now that you mention it. Oh, my gosh. All right. Now that we've had um, our, our <laughs> moments, I should probably finish talking to the the patrons um so uh thanks again heather (laughs) and um you're the best and we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you or you know go watch old winona ryder movies also or play croquet any of the above below we will not bring the frozen charlotte dolls we promise I don't know if I promise. (laughs) Yes, well, anyway. So, um, which one of us wants to go first? Whichever one. I am completely okay either way. Well. Movable or non-movable. I was going to say, yours (laughs) don't move, so maybe we start with don't move and go into movable? Sure, we can do that. I'm up for that. Sweet. Yes. Yes, we're professionals. We've planned this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to (laughs) talk about mannequins. Also, so we drive into the city um, to do a completely contactless pickup for groceries and such. Right. And there is this turn, and we drive through a lot of country, Um, Mm -hmm. and there's this it's on a turn and there's a, a it's a small garden and there is somebody who has uh, a mannequin dressed up presumably for a scarecrow however <laughs> it it changes outfits and changes positions and the first time we saw it it was a really fucking creepy mannequin and now it's still creepy but less creepy but I made sure when we did our pickup this weekend, knowing full well I was talking mannequins, mm-hmm. that I took a picture of it. So, oh, nice. absolutely, we'll we'll be putting that out on on the Instagrams. But so, yeah, there is a notoriously haunted house on that same uh, in that same vein that is right near greenwood cemetery that i've talked about a million times already mm-hmm. even though we're only on episode eight um <laughs> and it definitely i don't know who owns it it's sort of a mysterious place but there's definitely a 
doll posed in the window <laughs> just to freak people out. Um, and it like the decorations change. Nobody lives there, but like it gets decorated for holidays and stuff. And it is it's a very weird and mysterious thing. And one of my favorite people who does uh, or one of my favorite companies that does ghost history tours in New York posted a photo Mm -hmm. and it was supposed to be of the doll in the window. Mm-hmm. Except there was a face that wasn't the doll in another window. <laughs> oh my goodness! That and so I pointed it out, and yeah. I was like, "Um, <laughs> did you mean for that to for to happen?" <laughs> yes, I just just thought you should know. It <laughs> all makes my heart yeah. so happy. Anyway, so, mannequins. Mannequins, like so, like everything that we seem to deep dive the history of mannequins is another crazy sketchy one and they actually go way further back than anticipated but they didn't know that until like 1923 so when howard carter opened king tut's tomb uh he discovered an armless legless wooden torso that was made exactly to the pharaoh's measurements standing next to the chest that held the ruler's clothing Wait, so a, just a bust of him? Right. Um, but it was okay. his exact measurements. And having we, as we just did our little mummy thing, I was like, huh. So oh, they, I bet it was used to dress him. It was. So they they dated it back to thir- like to 1350 BC. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out like Nero's wife had inanimate surrogate models like done in her own image to help her review her clothing choices. So it's not entirely all uh-huh. that far off. It's like Clueless with the Polaroids. <laughs> right? <laughs> or whatever it was. Yeah, and then it was a shit little computer thing. Yeah, she? I, I yeah. tried to program something very similar at that age. Between anyway. man and weird science, we had, yes. we had such high hopes for computers. So, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, though, fake... People, for lack of mm-hmm. a better way of, of phrasing it, have come in like various forms over the years. Children's toys, uh, wax effigies, tailor's dummies, artist lay figures. Like all of them can kind of be lumped in with, um, with dummies. Victorian morning uh, right? effigies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the European fashion doll, though, is pretty much where I'm going to start and where most yeah. people consider this the true start of like the modern mannequin. Mm-hmm. Now, not all mannequins were used for fashion. Um, there were ivory mannequins that were used by doctors in the 17th century to study medical and uh, like anatomy. Yeah. And as, anatomical and teaching, venuses. Right. And exactly. They were like a teaching aid for pregnancy and childbirth. And like I, each. Yeah. There's only 180 known surviving ancient medical mannequins worldwide. So that is now on my white way. And there are. There are some here. <gasps> um, so, you know, you should come nice. see them. There are, yes. there are multiple. Um, and there's a book on just them from uh, nice. the Morbid Anatomy Museum, I think. Anyway, um, awesome. I, just, I just added this literal topic to our topic suggestion list for later. Because I think awesome. we need. I agree. It was real hard. It was real hard yeah. for me not to just dive head first. No. And as awesome as that is, I totally had to pick a path and I went with yeah. fashion. 
And I'm sorry for interrupting you. I just got so excited. No, that's, girl, that's why we do this. So we can talk about shit we love. Okay, yes, fair enough. So, so while I chose fashion, don't worry, at one point shit still gets creepy. So. Oh, yeah. Again, years kind of debatable, um, but it was still pretty much undoubtedly the French that we have to thank for mannequins. I'm uh, shocked. Right. Uh, so back in 1391, Charles IV of Spain shipped a life-size doll dressed in the style of the French court to the Queen of England as part of an ongoing peace negotiation. Uh, Henry IV dispatched miniature, elegantly attired dolls to the Medici women. Remember Catherine in our last friggin' episode who like uh-huh. banned wide waists? Yeah, to update them on the British trends. Um, and these dolls that went oh, back and forth. Oh, we didn't have fashion plates. and huh? Right. These dolls, <laughs> actually, there is a, there's a section. There, these dolls during wartime had special permission to be passed. Like whoever was carrying the doll had special privilege to go through unharmed to deliver these friggin' dolls. Like they That's... got a pass during wartime. Was it so if you were invited to the court or needed to appear at court, you would be appropriately attired? Part of it was that, um, and part of it was just uh, to keep things abreast in fashion. But then if you if you go back to our episode where we talk about corsets, or no, we talk about pockets, pockets, how they <laughs> took the pockets out. Um, right. So that women couldn't, you know, mysteriously, you know, pass stuff in their pocket during wartime. So there, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of really cool shit that we could probably drum up in just a clothing during wartime. I bet those dolls weren't hollowed out and carrying secret messages at all. Not at all. Little embroidered messages on the butt. Yeah, uh, you'd never do that. Never. So uh, and Marie Antoinette kept her mothers and sisters appraised of the latest vogues at Versailles with, again, elaborately closed figures that she regularly sent to them. Tiny paneers. (laughs) (laughs) They would look like little mustaches. (laughs) Yes. After the French Revolution, Marie was not the only thing that lost her head. Uh, Fashion (laughs) dolls were replaced with drawings and like these utilitarian dress forms made of like wire and leather and wicker. And they were often headless and basically just padded coat hangers that displayed clothes with like zero personality uh so apparently the french just i don't know what they were doing maybe that's we should probably see how how big opium was there at the time they just kind of checked out for a bit um well they're sort of bird cage looking yeah uh, but then they, they regained their senses in time to introduce the full-bodied mannequin in oh they found cocaine <laughs> <laughs> yes so the original mannequins were paper mache and then cast in wax. Then entered the Industrial Revolution. So this was a time that sewing machines were invented. Stores mm-hmm. now had these giant plate glass windows and cities began to have electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the men and women that strolled the boulevards were now considered an audience. And then the mannequins were considered kind of like the players. So fashion oh. goods, the fashion goods then would be displayed in these lifelike room settings with mannequins known as open displays. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they the still windows, are in New York. Right. 
uh, and almost every, well, at least, well, the big cities that I've been in. Um, I don't know. So yeah, <laughs> I only Milwaukee, live Chicago, here. San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so these open, so the windows uh, are these, they rely on themes and narrative, like narratives rather than a bunch of goods for sale. So yeah. instead of seeing a bunch of things, you would see like women at a table with like kitchen items and there would be not only them in their clothing, but then the, there would be like fabric draped behind them to show the different fabrics that outfit came in. And um, so they were giving them like a precise domestic or cultural setting and then giving them like quality um, over practicality and price. So these displays, the fixtures, the stands, the mannequins all became something that people love to crowd around and see. And they really, really pushed the economy in a lot of ways. Um, and became like a form of entertainment. Like millions care, like came to stare at these like little make believe worlds that were frozen in place. The female mannequins uh, that stared back at them, <laughs> and those early days were big busted heroines in three basic poses. You had the left foot forward, you had your right foot forward, or both feet together, and they cost mm-hmm. fifteen dollars a piece, which was a pretty tidy sum at that point. This yeah. was my, this was an interesting little thing to me that I was really excited about. So, as these re- as, like retails prospered, so did the display mm-hmm. industry. L. Frank. Oh, Bond. Lord and Taylor is what I was thinking of. Oh, Lord yep, and yep, Taylor yep. is the one that's at of the time period because ah, gotcha. they've existed for a hundred and four years or something. How long um, has Bergdorf's been around? They're pretty old too, right? Yes, but they are further north, and I don't go there. <laughs> so, uh... Um, they all sort of happened about the same time when right. it became the, um, uh, Ladies' Mile. Yes. I think. So, anyway. L. Frank Baum, who yeah. went on to create the Immortal Oz books... Yeah! Was, he was fascinated with the display industry. And he got his start in 1898 as the editor of the first trade magazine on show windows. And two years later, he wrote an entire book on it. This is my favorite part. In the book, he discussed the importance of mannequins to attract customers to the store goods. This is his quote. Without such displays, he wrote, the merchant sinks into oblivion. The busy world forgets him and he is left to himself to rust, vegetate, or to fail ignominiously. The same obstacles the Tin Woodman, Scarecrow, and Cowardly Lion would later face in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, dear. Right? I was like, that's kind of crazy. I so mean, not wrong. Right? Um, <clears throat> so let's talk <clears throat> about these glamorous window models. Uh, they were clumsy. They were heavy. They weighed about 300 pounds. They also included wow. realism. How real? Oh, we're talking serving some taxidermy realness with actual teeth, glass eyes, and real hair. Yes, it gets better. So their feet were made of iron, legs and arms of dense wood, and the torsos and head of solid wax, which made them hard to clean, but also they would occasionally melt under the lights. (laughs) So those wax heads full of teeth and hair and glass eyes just melting away in the front. Like, can you imagine? I want to know if they had um, hair other places. Oh, right. 
I so, mean, can you imagine being a, a bored crafts person of this? Right. I'm just saying I might not be able to resist. Oh, there would be all kinds of realness, like, shoved in mm-hmm. there. So, uh, World War One, Practicality came about. Mannequins reflected that social change, shed their hats, unlaced the corsets, exposed knees and ankles, and flattened the Victorian monobreast. As oh, women- yes. <laughs> As women became uh, practical, then the mannequin shapes followed suit. So now they were also rocking movable limbs rather than the stiff Victorian poses. So by the 20s, the formal straight-laced, big-boobed Victorian woman, gone, rejected, replaced by the easygoing, boyish, androgynous flapper who favored a slender, straight figure with a flat chest. So Much easier to dress. (laughs) Right? Mannequins of this period emulated the transition of this preference, but they also revealed the influence of Art Deco and the Art Nouveau movements with their geometric renditions of the human form. Mm-hmm. Uh, modernism also brought with it not only design, but also new materials. So Siegel and Stockman, who um, they, I, think they're, I think they're still around, uh, introduced um, fully paper macheed mannequins. Uh, which were 100 pounds less, and they were more heat-resistant. Uh, oh, yeah, I sent you that creepy doll, the creepy little right. kid one, didn't I? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's creepy. Uh, so Pierimon took the mannequin to new heights with modernist figures, new poses, and some of the first mannequins with darker skin tones. Oh. Uh, yeah, he modeled a, a, a mannequin after a dancer, singer, actress, Josephine Baker. It was amazing. Uh, and fierce as fuck. So that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Some are even subversive, showing a lesbian couple at the Streets of Paris exhibition at the Moulin Rouge in 1920s. Right? Well, I know. I'm like, I kind of think like that era would have been would have been a good one. Yeah, um, but the Moulin Rouge also like that was naughty anyway. Yeah, so I yes. Exactly. Uh, so, and then, mm. so that was the 20s, and then the onset of the Great Depression in the 30s, uh, a more conservative approach to fashion ended up kind of displacing that of the 20s. Uh, mannequin makers such as Lester Gaba makes his models, which were the Gaba girls, which were, re- and they were reminiscent of Marlene Dietrich and Greta Garbo. So their bodies were thin, and they were regally posed, and they really tried to model them after, like, real New York socialites. Okay. Um, so new materials of this not decade, creepy at all. No, right? Uh, Australian doll maker turned manufacturer, mannequin manufacturer, Kath Cruz, uh, devised a metal skeleton that cover then covered it with uh, skin-like material, which then enabled even more of a variety of positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, mannequins also uh, had softer features than because of it, so they had um, higher cheekbones, more oval faces. And they could actually, again, the po- not only the poses, but the expressions could be more huh. lifelike. Uh, Lester Gaba uh, designed the lifelike Cynthia, who was modeled after 1932 uh, wealthy synth- socialite Cynthia Wells. Mm-hmm. So Cynthia was a mannequin that weighed 100 pounds. She had realistic imperfections uh, and freckles and perpetually seated she was in a perpetually seated pose with a cigarette in her hand oh wait i know this (laughs) gaba 
took her out for several public dates, garnering so much attention that they got a spread in Life magazine and they became celebrities. That's amazing. Gossip columnists began writing about Cynthia as if she was a living, breathing socialite. And Tiffany's even sent Cynthia jewelry to wear for seeing a unique PR opportunity. She even got invited to a royal wedding and received copious amounts of fan fan mail. And at at the end of the period... Which royal wedding did she get invited to? Must have been Princess Grace of Monaco? That's... That seems about right. Uh, I don't but know. At the, I'm just guessing. At the end of the time period, poor Cynthia slipped from a salon chair and smashed oh, <laughs> to bits, and she is Cynthia. no more. And I was like, she loved it. Was, was it was murder? A, I think right, there's a mystery murder. to be solved there. Right, from a salon chair. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of her, like and a, I get it. So, and not to be, you know, outdone, then we got 191939, surrealist, one of my favorite weird fucking men, Salvador Dali, is commissioned to create a window display at the New York department store Bonwit Teller. That's a terrible it on idea. The, <laughs> basing, oh, listen, basing it on the narcissist complex, Dali lined a bathtub with black Persian lambskin, filled it with darkened water, sprinkled narcissus flowers and disembodied wax hands reached out from under the water holding mirrors towards an 1890s wax mannequin her body clad only in feathers her head topped with a blonde wig crawling with fake blood bugs and blood red tears streaming from her eyes i want photos so bad the display was quickly removed due to complaints from shoppers. There and must be photos. Heard, there has to be. When he heard the news that it was removed, he went back to this display and threw the bathtub through the glass plate window onto Fifth Avenue uh, and, and got arrested. <laughs> I think I may have found... Like, everything, everything about that sounds pretty amazing to me. Well, so, I think that there have been, I think he's done more than one. There are a lot <laughs> of questionable choices. Which you uh, gotta love. So, I mean, that was, I, I think, uh, I think that was pretty much the height of mannequin life. Wow. The 30s were it. <laughs> so, then we got the 40s and 50s. Everything else past this kind of pales compared to it, I think. Uh, but so the shop windows during Second World War II, again, were wartime, back to subdued. Bright colors are, re- clothes are replaced with, you know, somber expressions of patriotic duty. And, uh, but there were material advancements. Uh, Wolf and Vine became the first company to create a completely plastic mannequin. Uh, only problem was display windows caused a chemical, re- like the lights in them, caused a chemical reaction in the new material turning in a green color, forcing it the manufacturer to take it off the market. So it's probably another poisonous green we should have included. <laughs> I mean, there are so many at this point. Right. Uh, and again, wartime rationing, dress silhouette becomes slimmer and less embellished, and the mannequin is made shorter than its predecessor to preserve precious resources. Uh, as troops return home to the 1945, the full-figured voluptuous mannequin along with its smile, kind of came, started to come back a bit. And pointed um, boobs. Totally pointed boobs. Uh, 
So then we've got the 50s and 60s, uh, which marks a boom in U.S. Com consumerism. Uh, mannequins became more u uniform in shape and size, embodying the period's ideal notion of female from, like, stores across the country. So, um, but it also entered this weird combination of prudishness and then just completely unrealistic body ideals. So in the 40s and 50s, uh, the American companies sanded the nipples off of older mannequins because they were deemed too overtly sexual, according to mannequin, <laughs> es <laughs> mannequin expert Dr. Marsha Bentley Hale, which I love that there is a That's mannequin. That's a job title. Mm -hmm. Right? A job title with a doctor attached to it. Um, so, and then like Mon Marilyn Monroe, the most popular movie star of the period, mannequins started having these tiny defined waistlines, rounded hips, high boobs, sloping shoulders, and the perfect and for most unattainable hourglass figure. And then 1959 gave us the first Barbie doll, which again, her hourglass figure um it's manufactured by Mattel, and three dolls are sold every second. Huh. Which was crazy pants. Um, also, fun note, during the 1950s, mannequins were used in nuclear tests to help show the effects of nuclear weapons on humans. Well, I bet they exploded. <laughs> they went boom. Mm. Uh 1960s and 70s, mannequins embodied the changing beauty standards of the sexual revolution. Although appearing different in style from the decade previous, they still ignore the size and shape of the average consumer. Uh, this was the start of, like, the supermodel era, during which, like, stick-thing Twiggy reigned supreme. The... I love Twiggy. Right. Um, so, I mean, fiber... she's problematic, she, oh, yeah. I, I think. But, um... well, now they had new fiberglass materials and... Uh, that made mannequins lighter and sturdier. And uh, nipples returned. So, oh. huzzah. Hi, guys. Did right? they just glue them back on? Like, what <laughs> What was the process of returning right. nipples? Re Did they have, like, false nipples put into bras? Re-nipplefication. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, hi. And again, now we kind of went back to the whole... Uh, our friend Cynthia and that high fashion mannequins started to copy celebrities so much so that Adele uh, Rootstein makes Twiggy her own mannequin mimicking her minuscule little body measurements and copying her facial features so Twiggy becomes Rootstein's most famous mannequin uh, Rootstein also produces the first well-known ethnic figure Danya Danya Luna and her likeness was consistently positioned in, fem in feline poses, which is fucking problematic because it reaffirmed the whole animalistic and overly sexualized stereotype for women of color. So it's suck it. Could we not? Right. Uh, 70s, 80s. Why not uh, just a nice pantsuit? Right. Or like every other human being. Cocktail you know, dress. It, right. So, uh, 70s and 80s, as opposed to the glamorous celebrity mannequins of the 60s, mannequins of the 70s, uh, became more abstract and kind of faceless, slowly morphing into, like, the headless drone-like figures, which kind of gained runway popularity in the 90s. 
Yeah, so. those are scary, and I don't like them. They remind me of department stores of my uh, later youth. Right, and then during that time, uh, mannequins are typically painted, uh, they start to be painted in solid black, gray, and white. Uh, 1970s also saw the introduction of petite mannequins, though, designed to model clothing for women of a shorter height, typically five foot three. However, as journalist Helen Burgraff noted in Crane's New York Business, petite mannequins are universally several inches taller than the women for whom they are designed because clothes simply look better on taller figures. At that, so a size, <sighs> That's true. A size 12 in the 70s is equivalent to a size 8 today. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1980s and 90s. Uh, That's why Marilyn Monroe was 16, but she was actually quite slim. Exactly. Uh, so, the 80s. Enter home video exercise tape trend. And <laughs> Richard Simmons to sweating to the oldies. Yes, yeah, sweating, getting shape, girl. We got it going on. Brief focus on health and fitness. And in response, mannequins emerge with some realistically toned features. Now, I would fail if I did not mention the 1987 hit Mannequin starting Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall. Um, <laughs> oh, Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> right? He's him. my favorite of the, right. of the Brat Pack. Um, if he's been canceled, ignore that. Right. I, don't I, I lose track. Right. So in Mannequin, our lovely, adorable Andrew McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, plays an underemployed artist that falls in love with a mannequin, which is Kim Cattrall, who only comes to life for him. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, maybe for another episode, (laughs) but it also gives me the ability to kind of scoot in my fun fact, which is agalmatophilia, agalmatophilia, agalmatophilia is sexual attraction to mannequins. Oh, that's a a thing. It's okay. a thing. I mean, I I know that objects, like, say, the right. bridges or the Eiffel Tower are a thing, right. but I, I appreciate that mannequins are their own separate... Their own separate thing. I wonder if that includes, um, like, the the real girl dolls, like the sex dolls. I know. Or they if that's a whole real. different thing. They are. That's and I, they also episode. make them in male also so i'm unsure why we're real girls still but eh, whatever real people yes indeed Uh, and at the time uh mannequins started to acquire realistic backbones belly buttons and ads also um and I don't know why this was included in the article I was reading, but a fun little note was 69% of Playboy magazine models weighed 15% less than the average healthy weight for their size at that time. So I think they were trying to talk about, like, okay, the belly buttons and the abs and stuff are realistic, but we're still, like, these these mannequins are still not, like, in our whole ideal of, of human bodies and what they're supposed to look like has just gone out the fucking window. Well, also uh. lens refractions in photography um, right. distort just enough to make you look slightly bigger than you mm-hmm. actually are. Yeah. And so I assume the photos looked healthy in a way 
that um, if they were actually Maybe heavier, they would look like, different. Yeah. I don't know. But enter the 90s and heroin chic. Oh, uh, yes. My my favorite of the chics. Right. Well, and it's, it's yeah. interesting because the 90s Kate was... Kate Moss. Yep, exactly. Kate Moss prevailed uh, as the ideal form at that time. But also during this time period, plus-size retailers and fashions actually gained popularity. And accordingly, larger models emerged on the market and uh, that were closer in size to the average woman, which was a size 14 at the time. So interestingly, even even plus-size mannequins are accused of not accurately representing plus-size bodies. Uh, Bust Magazine reported in 2013 that historically most mannequins for larger clothes are made by just magnifying the general proportions of smaller mannequins. That's not how that works. That's like trying to make pants shorter and calling them petite. That is not how proportions work. Love Haley. Exactly. Also, fun fact, in 1991, 1991, mind you. Yeah. 81% of U.S. 10-year-olds were afraid of becoming fat. Fuck you very much, patriarchy, because that is frightening. I mean, that totally makes sense to me. I grew up in the aerobic studio watching my mom work out in the 80s. And so I can, I remember being in elementary school and choosing to bring rice cakes for lunch. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually like rice cakes, and I would put peanut butter on them, and it, it was less <laughs> troublesome than one might think, but it was, it was diet culture all the way. Right. Ugh, so sad. So, for the most part now, today's commercial mannequins have departed completely from realism or variation, and instead have just kind of transformed slowly into this faceless, block-colored drones Visual display has turned into a corporate cookie-cutter kind of reality, says Chad Michael Morissette, a mannequin collector and director of visual merchandising company CM Squared Designs. Hmm. So that is uh, the interesting turn of events that have brought us the joy and history of mannequins. Wow. I that loved, I was loved... more involved than expected. Right. Like, I was like, oh, okay, like, I get in, and in my head, I guess, I was thinking of, like, the evolution of the dress form, or, you know, like, it, it didn't yeah. quite. Which we should also look me. into. Right? I have a vintage dress form um, that I scored at a Goodwill for $4.99. That's amazing. It is. I have a petite dress form, but I have dreams of getting a body scan. Ooh. Um, and getting um there are several dress form companies that will make to 3d scan that's amazing yeah Yeah. all this is about to to create a pattern from a dress that she already has that she likes and wants to reproduce so we're we're uh we're expanding on skills in our household but well if you need any advice let me (laughs) i know how to do that (laughs) but yeah i was real it was it's always really interesting obviously we pick topics that we like or we have interest in but yeah. it's always really neat to find out like the dolly connection was pretty cool and and the whole yeah. frame like the and i did find photos of part of Ooh. that display not the one you described but another mm-hmm. window 
I think it was taken down pretty freaking quickly. Like, I don't know that it was up all that long. But I mean, the was... one that is there is pretty terrifying. <laughs> so... <laughs> so, yeah. So, those are our mannequins. Those are oh. mannequins. Well... So I uh, am going to sort of take us down the Andrew McCarthy path. Yes. Um, where things move. <laughs> I was going to say, um, are we uh, looking out with Kim Cattrall? <laughs> well, okay, f- fine. Or <laughs> Andrew McCarthy. That all, Either right? or. Oh, ooh, ooh, or Molly Ringwald. Tis him and Molly. I didn't hear you. Oh, I said, or Molly Ringwald, because, you know, him and Molly and... Pretty in pink. Oh, oh yes, yes. Although, Although that I is was much not... more ducky. <laughs> exactly. My uh, my favorite Andrew McCarthy movie is called Class, and it is a little known brat brat pack movie. It's Rob Lowe, um, and they're at a uh, um, a boarding school, and Rob Lowe's the rich roommate, and Andrew McCarthy's. Uh, the scholarship kid. Oh, I'm gonna so be hunting that down. Yeah, it's um, deeply problematic oh. and of its time, and also so good and <laughs> so cute. And There's so many problematic, but it's so oh, hard. Whatever. It's hard to go back and watch. And, and like, honestly, oh. Rob Lowe is one of the few square-jawed men. Who I am like, all right, you could get it. Um, He has aged very well. Yes, he has. So is Andrew McCarthy, actually. Yeah, actually, yeah. It's surprising considering how much drugs were done. (laughs) Well, they were also older during the... Right. Like, they weren't teenagers. Molly Ringwald was, but... Right, and so was um, Anthony Michael Hall, who had his own glow up out of nowhere. Right. Enter Edward Scissor's hands, and you're like, what? No, that's not King of the Dweebs. (laughs) Mm. Speaking of uh, things Winona Ryder's in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so I'm going to tell you about automatons. So, you know, things that come to life. (laughs) <laughs> All right. So I really thought automatons were going to start much later than they actually did in history. So um, we're going to start with the ancient Greeks, as it turns oh. out. Um, hey, now. Get it, Greeks. Right? Really? Um, so... There are in Greek mythology many mechanical objects in stories that were probably myths, but they were actually capable of creating machines at the time that were powered by steam or water or, like, human-powered levers. And so, like, that technology actually existed. And one of the known items that was made um, was made by Greek inventor, mathematician, and pneumatics expert, um, Stestibos. And he lived around 285 to 222 B.C., 
And so this is the time period that we're looking at. And there was steam-powered stuff? That's really impressive. Yeah. Levers and gears, I could kind of picture crude, but steam is pretty impressive. I mean, if you're working with water and you've got the ability to do fire. Right. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, you can make steam. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know much about how steam came into play there. But um, uh, this is one of those Greek names with a silent C followed by a consonant. So um, (laughs) Testibos. I'm going to go with. Um, He created a water clock that was thought to be the most accurate ever made at the time, but it remained the most accurate that existed until Dutch physicist Christian Huygens invented the pendulum clock in 1656. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. And he also um, invented a water organ that was the precursor to the modern pipe organ. And he may have been the originator of the idea of the siphon um, in connection uh, with trying to lift water from wells. Wow. Um, so it, maybe not, but it's often attributed to him uh, as the originator of that idea. Even and if not, he's still got a lot of good shit under his belt there. Right? <laughs> and fun fact about him, he started life as a barber. And, oh, wow. And he invented a counterweight adjustable mirror. And wow. that is sort of how he got started. And honestly, I don't know that I knew that ancient Greeks had mirrors. Although I guess I knew that there were looking glasses in ancient Egypt, so... Yeah. But I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have connected them either. So that that seems like a Greek guy? Right? So, moving along to the Middle (laughs) Ages. Um, (laughs) Uh... Basically, the Muslims had automata on lock at this point. So, um, in 8th century Baghdad, there were wind-powered statues, which is kind of cool. And then, yeah, and then in 9th century Baghdad, a group of brothers called the Banu Musa created a steam-powered automatic flute player that was probably the first working example of a programmable machine. Wow. Um, that's, that's ninth century. So, uh, yeah. And then in 1206, inventor Al Jazeera published a book called Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices. <laughs> Um, no humility there at all. <laughs> no genius. And many of his inventions were for entertainment purposes or as jokes. Like there was a like vessel of like a drinking vessel that mm-hmm. looked like it was full and then it was empty when you tried oh to drink from gosh. it. Oh my gosh! Like that's hilarious. He made very bizarre things, um, but 
He also made some things... A lot of these inventions were made by people for the amusement of the wealthy. And so he made, and this is in 1206, um, a water-powered automaton orchestra that was built on a floating boat that included two drummers, a harpist, and a flautist, and a rowing oarsman to keep the boat in motion. And the musicians actually played music, and they moved. And this... Crazy pants. Yeah, and this contraption used pegs that turned levers to create the different sounds and move the mechanical figures in lifelike ways. And it was probably the first example of a programmable computer. Although, there are many, many things that are said to be the first example of a programmable computer. So, um, wink, wink at at Miss Lovelace here. Yes. Um, Can you imagine how much that scared the shit out of the people at the time? Like, depending on how realistic these looked. Like, if you just... Yeah. Well, and it, it... I feel like it's sort of... Like, um, how the special effects in Ghostbusters look kind of <laughs> stupid now, but they scared the shit out of you when, when right. you were, like, eight. Uh, I, I hate that. Feel I like, showed yeah. poltergeist to my kids, and they were like, really? Really? And I was like, shut up, it's scary. Uh, I, <laughs> I am not going to watch it again, because right. I'm still scared of it. Right. Um, and so, that was in the Middle East, um, and specifically within the Muslim world in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, in Europe, um, the birth of clockwork was taking hold in medieval city-states. And often these were for church bells and clocks um, that provided regularity for city residents, because mm-hmm. they were no longer, um, like, before people lived in the cities... There was, like, there were seasons that dictated what they did and sunrise and sunset that dictated, Mm -hmm. like, the farming and and things like that. Um, And so these clocks provided sort of that structure for city residents. And in 13th century Bern, Switzerland, the Zeitglogge... was made and i've seen this in person and it's amazing 500 years after it was made it still works perfectly and um it gives a moving show to people who watch it uh and it's it's really really cool um and so these really early works were masterpieces of art and engineering and they also if they had figures that moved um like the zeitgloga um and other similar clockwork pieces Mm -hmm. um they often taught lessons in morality and virtue um but as seen from the point of view of aristocrats who were the people who were having these built. And so um, there are examples of, like, some extremely intricate, like, cityscapes that 
showed how, like, the perfect utopian society functions, everybody's doing their part, yada yada. Mm. Um, and the aristocrats are just sort of looking around while everybody else is diligently doing their jobs. Mm. And yeah. um, it seemed like this whole peaceful, idyllic scene, and also very cool because, mm. like, the things all move. Um, but that wasn't necessarily what was happening. So basically making, um, Autonoma relied on very skilled but poorly paid artisans. And, um, so as Automata became more intricate smaller and smaller mechanisms were being used and being made um but they were all being made by hand so like i'm not sure if you've ever considered how a screw was historically made oh i have my dad is a tool and die maker oh so if so- he was ever doing anything and he's like oh i don't have that part let me go make it so, so yeah. you know exactly I what do. a screw plate is. Yep. So there are these just microscopic screw plates that exist where, for people who aren't familiar, you're basically shoving a pin, mm-hmm. like a, a piece of metal the size of a pin, and forcing it in to this small, tiny hole in a screw plate that had threads inside and forcing it in transformed um, or transformed the pin into the same threaded object, although mm-hmm. opposite, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so like these were extremely, extremely skilled makers. And there were absolutely like famous watchmakers and yeah. horologists or horologist i'm unclear if we pronounce mm. that h um but for the most part the people doing the actual small like tiny specific manual labor were doing so by candlelight in the dark for next to nothing so that's fun which wow yeah, it's like that. I mean, it's historically like that. I mean, you'd have any craft, whether it was swords, you know, armor. Yeah, carpentry. Anything. Right. Anything was you. There would be these people that were famously good at it, but they would still get paid shit for it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, New York City is a prime example. Mm. Like all of our grand buildings, that's mm. why they're grand, because labor was cheap and there was plenty of it Mm -hmm. um and skilled labor coming over from Mm -hmm. many many places through ellis island so um anyway back to the renaissance which is where we're headed next so um with more clockwork happening Like I said, it got smaller and smaller and with increasing detail. And things became, 
like the actual physical pieces became smaller, even to the point of being able to be carried around in your hand. Um, and so the uh, much of the inspiration for the development of automata during the Renaissance period was in part thanks to um, the French philosopher and mathematician, because you could do those two things back in the day. Um, sure. uh, Rene Descartes. I should know Descartes. 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 Mm. There we go. Rene Descartes. Mm. Um, say, I know that name. This is nonsense. <laughs> um, who wrote about how he thought the bodies of animals were no more complex than machines and that internal organs could be basically recreated via mechanical instruments. Um, and, like, he just thought so. He thought everything was that simple. So You know those were some fun dinner parties he was at. <laughs> oh. It, so, uh, now enter... Jacques de Vaucanson, yes, who is a creepy motherfucker. Nice. Um, <laughs> so he was around from 1709 to 1782. He was known to be a pioneer in simulated human movement, and he also thought that there was basically no difference between humans and machines, and. In his spare time, he took anatomy classes to learn how human bodies worked so he could recreate those functions with clockwork. And when I say anatomy classes, I mean he dissected corpses. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I mean, in a learning setting, presumably, okay. but... Um, a, it's a little less troubling that way. Yeah. It, Not it's, like, you know, in his basement... <laughs> may well have been in his basement. I don't know. And so to him, automata were supposed to be self-moving machines that mimicked human movement. And my favorite part about this this madman <laughs> is um, that one of the automata that he is most famous for making is called the digesting duck which was a copper automaton that was able to eat digest and excrete its food and it even included an internal chemical lab to decompose the food which is a whole lot of work yeah, whole lot of work for basically a shitting duck robot. Um, right. And I feel like maybe, just maybe, he took that whole recreating anything a body can do with clockwork idea a bit far. Here. I'm saying, because that's what? way more complex than Baby Alive was. And I was Princess exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of here for it. Like... Yeah. <laughs> wow. You go. Wow. Yeah, and it's you can find man. diagrams of this thing. It, it is it is oh, something. <clears throat> okay. 
So next up comes the person who probably made the automata that give you nightmares. Yay! Yes, so Pierre <laughs> Jacques Dros was a 1721-1790 living watchmaker. Okay. And the reason that you probably have seen what he's made is because the things that he made were basically the dolls that can move. No, 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 yeah, no. The, <laughs> but they don't just, like, blink or wave. They actually do things. Mm. And there are three that he's most famous for. Um, and they were built by him, his son, Henri Louis, and um, Jean-Frederic Lachat. And so these three created... The Musician, which is a female organ player, but the music isn't recorded or played by a music box. The doll plays a real custom-built instrument by pressing the keys with her fingers. Oh my. Yeah. And there are movements of her chest that show her breathing. And she uh-uh. follows her fingers with both her head and her eyes. And she also Whoa. makes some of the more subtle movements that someone actually playing would do, such as rebalancing her torso. Like, well seated. Oh, that's, that's real creepy. Yeah. And so she's quite something. And yeah. the next one that you probably also have seen is the draftsman um which is a young like a little boy who draws four different images um he can draw a portrait of louis the 15th um a royal couple that is believed to be Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth. A dog with Montoto, which is apparently my doggy, written beside it, and a scene of Cupid driving a chariot pulled by a butterfly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. And so the um Draftsman works by using a system of CAMS, which um, is spelled C-A-M-S, that are basically um, spinning wheels that come into contact with um, tabs that are sticking up. So, like, kind of like gears. Yeah. Um, well, kind of, it looks more to me like music box stuff oh okay oh okay um except more robust um and it's not making noise it is driving different mechanical parts so like Mm -hmm. i guess very small motors almost um okay but he works by using a system of those that code the movements of the hands in two dimensions 
and then another one to lift the pencil. The, this um, drawing boy also moves on his chair and periodically blows on the pencil to remove dust. And as far as we know, um, this automaton has the most extensive mechanical memory of any known automaton. And you can actually see um, all three of the ones that I'm talking about. There's video. They still exist and they are still in beautiful working shape. So I guess there's, there's got to be like a continual <clears throat> roll of paper then that he draws on. And what happens when the pencil gets down? And like, I don't. I have no idea. Uh, I, I expect that they get changed. That makes sense. Because uh, it's individual sheets of paper. Oh, okay. Um, as far as I recall. Um, and so the third that you've probably also seen, <laughs> even if you don't think you have, is <laughs> the writer. Which is the most complex of the three. Um, It uses a similar system to the one used for the draftsman for each letter. And he is able to write any custom text up to 40 letters long. Um, Though the text is rarely changed, um, he can be programmed to write whatever you want um yeah uh and so writing help me over and over again oh dear god um so the text is coded on a wheel where the characters are selected one by one he uses a goose feather to write which he inks from time to time including a shake of the wrist to prevent ink from spilling Yeah, his eyes follow the text being written, and his head moves when he takes some ink. And he's about two feet and four inches tall. Um, And they all seem to be more or less around that size, um, of these three. So, yeah, there were... um, Those are the three that you're likely to have seen... That are in good shape that give you nightmares. <laughs> but there are also... Um, Marie Antoinette owned an automaton that um, played... What did it play? Um, a dulcimer. Right. Uh, it played a dulcimer... And is, like, dressed in full court and may or may not contain Marie Antoinette's own hair as its hair. And um, it was made for Marie Antoinette in 1784 um, by David Rogan Ten, who was a cabinet maker. Um, as a surprise to his patron, um, who was Louis the Sixteenth, for his queen, and so she's this small carved wooden woman, and 
also seems to be wearing a dress made from the fabric of one of the queen's own dresses. And she manipulates the strings with metal hammers. And she can play eight different tunes. Uh, and her head moves as she plays. Wow. Yep. And this also still exists and you can see video. Oh, wow. Yeah. So th- there are there are many. So some of the surviving ones look sort of like something that you would find in like Coney Island side shows like mm-hmm. Zoltar the fortune oh, teller. I love Zoltar. Me too. Um and as someone who for whom Coney Island is very near, like mm-hmm. I I have been to see Zoltar several times and it still works so to all of the weird astrology ones um Mm -hmm. but so there are those sort of there's that level of Mm -hmm. automaton that still exists and it's still a thing today i mean Mm -hmm. we've all probably been to Chuck E. Cheese or back when it was Showbiz Pizza. Showbiz was way better than Chuck E. I agree completely. (laughs) Um, And so those were all automatons. Yep. Disney is filled with automatons. It's a small world. Oh, and what the bear jamboree, whatever it is. Mm. Um, Like, and the Hall of Presidents. Those are all automatons. And... So there are just a lot of different levels of automata and they some of them move very smoothly and are very like uncanny valley and make you want to run and scream some of them <laughs> move more jerky and sort of remind me of um uh, the people, oh, ventriloquists, there we go, ventriloquist yeah. dummies. Um, but there, there are many. And Which so. Which are creepy in their own right. Yes, they totally are. <laughs> and yeah, I, I am just consistently overwhelmed by the variety. So there, there are Japanese tea serving clockworks there are there are just many many variations and so i will put a bunch of links and uh two videos and stuff like that in the show notes and maybe don't watch right before you go to bed (laughs) but also um while doing this research, I watched a um, a documentary that was also really neat that sort of or that showed a lot of the history and also talked to craftspeople who can Ooh. who are still capable of um, well generally repairing fine clocks, nice. but um, it is. Oh, where did it go? I have lost it. DDD. Hmm. I really did lose it. I think I closed it. 
Hell Blast Dam. Hold that thought. Oh, it is called Mechanical Marvels Clockwork Dreams. Um, and it's a BBC Four. Uh, but you can get it in the U.S. legally on Amazon. And you can nice. also get it on uh, Apple TV, which is okay. where I got it. Um, and so... I will have to yeah, check that out. It, is, it was totally worth the watch. And that's what I was watching right before bed last night. <laughs> because... Like you do. You know. Why I, not? Yeah. I yes. managed to, to, to do my own. Probably yeah. shouldn't have before bed as well when researching our Patreon episode. Exactly. <laughs> and I should also mention that automaton were not always people because this will come up in um, our Patreon episode. So if you aren't a member, uh, go do that because yeah. you want to hear about it. But um, like super ornate singing birds were a mm -hmm. thing for a while and like talking heads literally talking heads which i'm not yeah. actually sure if that was the origin of that phrase huh. um because they were definitely a f an automata phenomenon for a while um but yeah, so there were, you could also do animals and uh, toys, like many different variations. There's a, a famous tiger um, that is wooden, I believe. So there are lots of variations in what can be done, and you can actually find a decent number of them not in working order that exist that if you had the skill to repair them they are the creepiest mm -hmm. shit you've ever seen um that just sounds like challenge accepted yes to me, what that sounds like and i have run into one in person um i have a a friend who had like i said a boyfriend of a friend who had a show on the discovery channel who's um who has a building with a basement filled with stuff and a backyard filled with stuff mm -hmm. and there are like fun house things and mm. freak show things and a damn partially well partial faced automaton um, oh, that I ran God. into <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> once. Um, wait, the statute of limitations has not passed on that. So I'm actually going to leave it there. <laughs> yeah. I um, <laughs> and I will not mention his name because I do not want people to, like, break into his shit. Yeah. So, anyway. I have... Uh... And during Patreon, I'll be discussing one of my favorite, but also I require medication to get through it, uh, places in Wisconsin, House on the Rock. And there are a disturbing amount of automatons there as well. Oh, I, oh, 
I just, I, I found, like, you know the old school fun houses where you sit in the train and go through and they're yep. the things that, ah. Mm. I thought those were too much for me when I was yeah. young. <laughs> so. I don't do well with things that jump out at me. Oh, Which no. is why, like, I'm not allowed, literally not allowed in, like, Just three different say no houses. to the jump scare. Right, because if if you jump out in front of me, I will hit you and then run. Like, I am fighting flight. Like, I'll be like, pow, pow, and then run away. (laughs) Yeah, and my center of gravity is low, so assuming you're a male entity jumping out at me, gonna hit you in the balls and you're gonna go down. But I'm not going down because I'm five feet tall. Right. I took out uh, a leather face at the Hubertus House of Horrors. <gasps> yeah. Oh, no. They're not supposed to touch you. <laughs> I must have muttered that like 20 times when they were dragging me out of there. But this guy that popped up from wrong. in the wall. Right. This guy popped up from the wall behind me and put his arm around my chest and had me pinned against the wall. Oh, no. As, as the, the leather face came that at me with assault. a chainsaw. And that was, yeah, that's when all hell broke loose. And I was like, Whoop-pa! and then so I kicked the leather face and then turned around and punched the guy behind me. And everybody was like, what is going on? I'm like, and I just kept screaming, you're not supposed to touch me. <laughs> like, yeah, which was, I, yeah, they're lucky early you didn't go for the eyes. Consent. Right. I was like, look, like I had enough sense that it wasn't real, but don't pin me against a wall and then put a chainsaw at me. It's just not, not going to work well for you. So, yeah, poppy outing things, not my thing. So, now that we've talked about our history of misdemeanors, <laughs> um, I, although I think yours was arguably self-defense. That's what I'm saying. I think that me yelling, you're not supposed to touch me, is probably early days respect and consent, you know, <laughs> like, which is what my Also, they're not yelled. supposed to touch you. Seriously. Like, they're not. Yeah. So. They're not. Um, so do we want to, on that note, maybe mosey on over to our weekly worst way to die? (laughs) I think that's a good place to go. All right. So, I think my worst way to die would be as a soul trapped inside the writing automaton from Jacques Dros. Ooh. That c- yeah. can only write what you tell it to write. But oh, with, my goodness. But writes all the time forever. <laughs> I would just... And you know, and you want to write help me, and you know you can. Oh, yeah. Yep, oh, and your it. eyes are moving, and you can see what's going on, oh. and yet... Wasn't there an Are You Afraid of the Dark that was that? I think so. I've, there must be. Yeah. I th- maybe a ventriloquist that dummy funny. for that. Anyway. Yeah, so that that's, sounds right. That's my weekly worst way to die. So my weekly worst way to die um, is mannequin related, but specifically the hundreds of mannequins in various dress with the giant wings and the the ceiling of the carousel room of House on the Rock, either 
them falling on me and I get smothered to death, or they come alive and take me out. Why can't you see her nipple? I, I, I put a picture. I put oh, a picture yes. in the show notes. Yes, there, there's a picture. Her... Oh, there's many nipples. There's many. We'll get into that to the par- to the Patreon thing. But yeah, that's full on her nipple just hanging out. That is how big that, that is. A like a normal human woman dressy thing on her. Um, and there's hundreds of those. Hundreds. And they're all bigger than me, almost yeah. certainly. There and those those are the ones that are there's all also well we'll get into it in that I don't want to go down that road. You know what you shouldn't do in mm-hmm. in there? Yeah. Don't blink. Don't blink. Do don't not blink at blink. all. Seriously, that's it is straight up. The angels blink. have the darkest. Yes, they, it is. Uh, uh, creep- yeah. Yeah. So that that right um, there. Yeah. So also um because. We also want to know what you think would be the worst way to die every week. We're going to start putting a poll up on our Patreon page so you can weigh in and see who wins each week. Um, And obviously, at least I think on polls, you can comment um, and tell us if you have a scarier one. Yes, absolutely. And if you're not a Curiosity Shop member uh, and you want to be spooky internet friends with us, yeah, we are Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find us at BonesandBobbins.com. Indeed. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast because, you know, it pleases the internet gremlins and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. And who doesn't want to find us, honestly? Yes, seriously. And on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Mm -hmm. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.